Welcome to the Mainline Podcast. I'm Adam Jacquez, joined as always by Tyler Burton. It's good to be back after a week off after Independence Day, and we've got so much to talk about. We've got some recruiting going on. We've got some Big 12 media days. We've got some Twitter interaction with some different questions that you guys would like to ask Brent Venables. And then, of course, we'll talk about the best case, worst case scenarios, uh, maybe a little bit of hope and doom here at the end of the pod for the 2023 season. Before we dive into that, though, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm good, Adam. You know, we take one week off, but it feels like it's been a month since we've recorded a podcast. A lot of stuff's happened over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, a good July 4th. Uh, football recruiting uh, momentum is pretty much at an all-time high for the 2024 class. We'll touch on that here in a minute. Softball uh, has got a few players at the ESPYs. Hopefully, they can take home that award tonight. Uh, and Big 12 Media Day is kicking off, Adam. At this point right now, we haven't played a single game. There hasn't been one day of fall camp or practice. Uh, and basically, the takeaways from day one, Made a lot of positive strides in the weight room. The team looks good. Team's ready for the fall. And uh, Brett Yormark uh, kind of made some uh, some pretty interesting proclamations today regarding OU and Texas. Yeah, basically saying that, oh, yeah, I don't think OU and Texas have recruited the best because they haven't played in the conference championship game over the last couple of years. And like that's just one of the silliest things you could say out there because – Every coach in the Big 12 would trade rosters with OU in Texas. Like without a, a second of hesitation, they would all do that. Recruiting is one thing. Developing and building your program is a totally different thing there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what a silly thing to say. He obviously is trying to promote the teams that are still sticking around. I think he can do that without taking shots at OU in Texas because he's not fooling anybody. Nobody nationally is seeing that any differently than uh, than OU in Texas are. Um, so... It's kind of silly, but I guess you got to brand it your own way uh, to to you know try to promote your conference. Well, something you know being said like that, I kind of felt like Bob Bowlesby was back on the stage. But I mean, yeah, trying to downplay, I get it from a standpoint. OU and Texas are leaving the conference, pretty much saying that this is a win-win for both OU and Texas and for the Big Twelve. Okay, like you know, let's let's call a spade a spade. Don't put lipstick on a pig. Um, but but yeah, I mean, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, especially Oklahoma. They've carried this conference on their back for the better part of the last 20 to 30 years. So, you know, I get where the saltiness comes from. Obviously, you're losing your two cash cows, your two blue buds to, a, you know, to a competing rival conference. So I get it. But, um, I mean, what, what do you expect? I mean, we, we saw some saltiness coming from your mark. We saw, you know, Mike Gundy being his typical Mike Gundy self when you put a microphone in front of him. He had some interesting takes on Bedlam, which I really don't disagree with. Oklahoma made the choice to, to go to the SEC. So that kind of, you know, dooms Bedlam uh, being played in football for the foreseeable future. So, but what do you expect? It's Mike Gundy in front of the media. And obviously, we look forward to uh, Brent Venables and a couple of the, uh, couple of the players that are going to be traveling down to Arlington tomorrow uh, to take in day two of the media days. But, Adam, before we touch on some media day takes, we did put out a Twitter poll uh, just talking about if you put some truth serum in Brent Venables' drink, what would be something that you would want to ask Brent uh, to get a little bit of feedback on uh, coming off of a six and seven season going into 2023? But we need to start things off, Adam. Oklahoma got to commit over the, uh, over the break. Talk to us a little bit about uh, five-star uh, Davin Mitchell. Yeah, it feels like that's already been like two weeks ago, but it was just this past Saturday, I guess, and OU gets their tight end for the 2024 class. After striking out on a couple of local guys down in Washington, two players out of Washington, it, it kind of feels good to say, okay, we got someone that probably is, is going to be even better than either of those guys. And uh, it's a, definitely a position of need for the Sooners, and I think, Something that's pretty notable, you know, as far as getting Mitchell into the class here, uh, someone that is tight with Michael Hawkins, but is 
is known, I think, pretty nationally so that that can create some of that momentum for the Sooners. Because you look across the board, um, you know, Casey Poe choosing day, I don't think anyone, by the time we listen, anyone listens to this, he'll have already picked and, and everyone thinks that's going to be Alabama at this point. Yeah, so. he's, already, he's already committed to Alabama. Oh, already committed. Okay, so I yeah. missed that one. That was that, He was so off the radar for OU fans at this point, like we just didn't think it was that going that way. So outside of offensive line, though, but tons of recruits committing over the next month or so. You've got... Uh, Jaden Jackson tomorrow. You've got Zion Reagans here in, in a month. Uh, Taylor Tatum here, you know, in a couple of days. You've got uh, Williams Winery rumored to be committing on August 1st. Uh, Caden Durham, so on and so forth. A lot of big-name guys across offense and defense. Um, but it just feels like OU's in a great position for pretty much all these guys, and it's really the momentum we've been looking for uh, on the recruiting trail really over the last couple of months, and it feels like it's all going to come together here. Yeah, and obviously we'll dive into, you know, kind of the recruiting philosophy and some of the changes that Oklahoma is making behind the scenes, you know, from an NIL standpoint. We'll touch on that here in just a little bit. But, yeah, you can definitely – you can feel the momentum starting to ramp up. Obviously, you get Davin Mitchell, uh, a tight end who, you know, Oklahoma has kind of predicated themselves upon, you know, being an elite program, an elite destination for, you know, tight ends coming out of high school. You talk about Keith Jackson, Jermaine Gresham, Mark Andrews. And, you know, as good as Braden Willis was last year, obviously, in the NFL now, it's kind of left the tight end room, you know, Joe John, Joe John Finley's position kind of in a standstill right now where, yes, you've got a veteran guy in Austin Stogner back in Norman. He's got a lot of experience. He's played a lot of football both at, you know, at Oklahoma and in South Carolina. But really after that, you know, Caden Helms is out for the year. Jace Llewellyn, who hasn't really played any meaningful snaps whatsoever, he's kind of your second or third option behind, you know, Blake Smith, the, the tight end transfer from Texas A&M. So the fact that you're you're getting Mitchell to be able to come in one year earlier with him being able to reclassify to 2024, he's going to be a true freshman once OU, you know, makes the transition into the SEC. And you watch this kid's tape, the way he moves, the way he carries himself, and, you know, his playmaking ability uh, as a pass catcher. Um, I would expect uh, some early looks for for Davin Mitchell uh, going into next season when Oklahoma kicks off things in the SEC. Uh, and then, like you alluded to, Jane Jackson, you know, what a what a whirlwind of a recruitment that's been over the last 48 hours. A lot of people have kind of had him pegged between, you know, t- uh, Ohio State. Texas has came on recently, but you can't count out Todd Bates and Brent Venables. Uh, you know, always be closing, you know, for lack of a better term. Uh, this this coaching staff, you know, doesn't give up until the final whistle, and uh, we'll see if Oklahoma can't close things out with them. And OU fans, if you're reading the tea leaves, I saw somebody asking us on Twitter a little bit earlier today, if Oklahoma is able to get Jaden Jackson in the boat, does that bode well for David Stone? Well, guys, as close as those two are and as close as, you know, the, the, uh, the Jackson family is with David Stone, I can tell you this, he's probably not going to commit to Oklahoma unless he has a pretty good idea that David Stone's going to be part of the class as well. So, again, we'll dive into recruiting a little bit more as the month of July rolls on. But let's touch on Big 12 Media Days, Adam. We put this uh, we put this question out on Twitter for the followers uh, to kind of interact with this over the last 24 hours. What's a question or two that you would ask Brent Venables that he would have to be honest about when answering. And let's just kind of kick thing, this things off, Adam. We've got seven or eight here to go through. Um, let's, let's kick things off here. Sooner Shane on Twitter asks, do you think Grayson Halton will be first team all Big 12 this year? I believe he will be. I don't know if I can agree with Shane on that one just yet. I am high on Grayson Halton. I think he showed some nice signs uh, towards the end of that uh, freshman campaign, but Man, there's there's so many guys on this roster that I feel like are going to get playing time uh, between Dejon Terry, uh, Jacob Lacey. He seems like a guy that earlier in the summer it was like uh, I don't know if he's maybe going to be out for the year with some health issues. 
Haven't heard any of those murmurs since. So it sure looks like he's on track to play. Uh, you got Isaiah Coe coming back. You've got Jordan Kelly, a guy that I thought did a lot of good things towards the end of the year. Um, maybe he's maxed out at this point, but he was solid towards the end of the year. So if you can get some of that production out of him, it just it becomes, I, I don't want to say stacked in that room because that people take that and go, oh, there's just loaded with talent. I just think there's a lot of guys that are kind of roughly at the same level. It's not the elite level that we need that interior defensive line to be, but I just think there's right. a lot of guys that are kind of very similar there. So if Grayson Holton, now he has the biggest ceiling there out of those guys. He's one of the youngest guys in that room. So mm-hmm. potentially he could show up and be significantly better than some of those guys I just mentioned. And maybe he's able to eat away at a lot of the playing time there. But I think that's going to be really tough um, because he's not on the radar right now. He's really going to have to um, you know, come in and, and be – someone that makes so much noise that it's it's hard to not vote him in. And I think that's part of the reason you see, see uh, Ethan Downs showing up on all these all Big 12 teams because he had okay enough sack numbers and tackle for loss, tackle for loss uh, numbers last year. And that's what the media members are looking at. They're just going to look at who led you know in, in tackles for loss last year. Let's just throw that guy on there. They have no idea that Ethan Downs probably, probably won't start all that often. Uh, so... I mean, if he does, I don't. I don't think Ethan Downs is going to be like an All Big Twelve player. I don't think anyone thinks that. So, I, I think you just have to be on the radar. You have to be so loud that uh, people notice you. Yeah, it's a good question, Shane. I think that what we saw from Grayson uh, Halton a year ago during his freshman season, which again, it was a small sample size by comparison to the rest of the guys in that room, it does really make you, you know, excited going into this going into this upcoming fall. He's got the athleticism. He's got good footwork, powerful hams. And you combine that with a full offseason with Schmitty. He's put on another 15 to 20 pounds. If anybody saw the picture that Todd Bates put out last night from the from the cookout that he had with the defensive line class, Grayson Alton, you know, you can tell he's taking the offseason seriously. He's bulked up, put on 15 to 20 more pounds of muscle. I think first team all conference is a little bit of a stretch when you look at the talent at this position across the conference, along with the talented guys that he's going to be sharing playing time with. I'm not even sure Grayson Halton, you know, is a day one starter for this bunch. Um, you know, especially when you've got guys like you look to Adam, Dejon Cherry, uh, Co. Jordan Kelly, uh, Jonah Laulu, who's going to be representing Oklahoma at Big 12 Media Days uh, tomorrow. So there's a lot of, I keep on saying this because it's been a while, there's a lot of quality guys on that defensive line group. And we haven't even talked about Rondell Bothroyd or R. Mason Thomas. So this is a really good, really deep group, something that Oklahoma hasn't had in quite some time. But I'm expecting big things out of Grayson Halton uh, Grayson Halt this fall. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch this kid play. Uh, next question comes from at Coopride1982. And he asks, Adam, based on his assessments of the summer for Brent Venables, what are two things that excite him about the offense and the defense? I'll give you one on defense and I'll let you fill in the blank on on the other one there. Obviously they're not doing like full pads practice, but just looking at, I mean, it's, it's the off season. You see the pictures from the off season, the weight gains everybody's (laughs) made. Everyone looks huge. Everyone looks strong. Um, You might think that this is Tyler Burton talking to you, talking about length and girth here, but no, it's, it's still Adam. But yeah, these guys look huge. We saw the defensive line picture that came out recently from uh, the, I guess the, the night at Todd Bates. Um, And some of those guys just look massive. And so, like you alluded to, there's a lot of depth finally on the interior of the defensive line there. I think that's the one that we're all looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just enough dudes there to last year you had, you know, Reggie Grimes and Ethan Downs and R. Mason Thomas hurt a lot. And that was about all you had. And now this year you look at there's so much more depth between you had Trace Ford to that group. You had PJ to that group. You had Bothroyd to that group. And you've got the guys you had last year. So 
you're not asking as much from Reggie Grimes and Ethan Downs. And maybe those guys totally don't play, but maybe also at the same time, maybe they play 20% or 30% of the snaps they did last year. And, you know, they're able to give a lot Rotation. more in that, in that percentage. Exactly. Yeah. So you can just play so much better. And that's across the board, all, all levels of defense. Linebackers, you have more depth. Safeties, you have a ton more depth. Um, there's just so much there that I think Brent is going to be super excited about. Um, I'll let you add to defense before we jump over to offense then. Yeah, defensively, I'm doing a little bit of a combination here. One, I'm excited about the jump that these guys are about to take playing in their second year of Brent's defense. You combine that with some of the upgrades that we've made personnel-wise through the transfer portal at some really key positions. The the defensive line, and again, I know that it's only July here. We still have a long ways to go. But in my opinion, the defensive line should be leaps and bounds better than they were a year ago, which is going to give Brent the ability, I think, to use the entire call sheet on defense Um our secondary has the ability, I think, Adam, to be the most athletic and physically imposing groups that we've had since the Aaron Colvin, uh, the Tony Jefferson days. So uh, when you combine Billy Bowman, you know, Reggie Pearson, Woody, Gentry, RSJ, and we're not even talking yet about some of the, you know, some of the true freshmen that are going to be hard to keep off the field, like a Peyton Bowen, a Makari Vickers, a Josiah Wagner. I think it's going to look a lot different on defense this fall for the Sooners compared to what we saw a year ago. But, you know, you're not predicated upon how well you look in a jersey. You're not, you know, you're not judged on, you know, what your measurements are. You're judged on going out there and playing football on Saturdays and racking up wins and, you know, minimizing the losses. So as far as offense goes, first for me, it kind of starts at tailback where you've got possibly the most talented collection of guys in that room since Joe Mixon and Samaj P. Ryan were in, uh, were part of the program in 2016. Javante Barnes, from everything that we've heard, has had a great offseason. He's looking to build on a fantastic freshman campaign. Gavin Salchuk, I cannot wait to watch this kid in a full season's worth of action. He kind of had his coming out party during the bowl game against Florida State where he went for 100 yards and a touchdown. We all kind of know what we have in Marcus Major. He's going to start off the year healthy. We'll see how long that lasts. I hope that he can you know, finish off his Oklahoma career with some good highlights. And then you talk about a guy like Tawi Walker, to go along with a couple of really nice true freshmen and, you know, Hicks and Smothers, I think that the uh, running back position has one uh, has an opportunity to be one of Oklahoma's strengths offensively this year. So hats off to DeMarco Murray on, you know, building the depth and the talent in that running back room. Second, Adam, and I'm going to throw this over to you to get your thoughts. I'm going to go with the big boys up front, the offensive line here. It kind of feels like we can confidently say that Walter Rouse and Tyler Guyton are cemented as your two tackles, but when you move in, move to the interior of the offensive line, this is where it kind of gets exciting because you've got a lot of possibilities and a lot of solid pieces that Bill Beanbow can play with. We've talked about Andrew Room; He's got the experience. We think he's going to be penciled in as the starting center, but then you've also got Troy Everett, the transfer in from Appalachian State, who's got a lot of experience, actually went down to Texas A&M and manhandled that defensive line that was full of five stars a year ago. Uh, Rain, Savion Bird, McCade Matower, Caleb Schaefer, the transfer in from Miami of Ohio. A lot of quality options. Now it's just about finding your top six to seven guys, uh, you know, during fall camp to kind of make up that rotation. So I'm excited about the running backs, but I'm also excited about the horses up front that are going to be blocking for them. Everyone kind of assumes that the offense is going to be worse this year than it was last year. And I, when you think about it, it's like, okay, yeah, they were number one in the Big 12 in rushing. They were number one in total offense in the Big 12. But, like, why couldn't they just do that again? Why can't they be even better than last year? I know sure. that there's not the wide receiver names that you, you want to see there, and there's a few holes on the offensive line. That's kind of how it is every year. But I think we've got a good nucleus of guys there. Uh, you know, in the wide receiver position, I think that's one that – 
can really help your team, but I don't think having a lack of guys there really hurts your team. I think it's a it's a less important position on the field on offense at least. Um, not to you know downgrade any of those guys and playmakers that you have, but I just think you can scheme around that a little bit easier. And, and there's a lot of dudes in that room. There's there's Andrew Anthony. Um, there's Brennan Thompson. We had uh, his mom Bonnie actually tweeted us the other day saying <laughs> that he's fitting in great, uh, which you love to hear. So I, I think there's a lot of guys there, and I think this kind of comes back to the same thing we were talking about on defense: is that you have depth. You have a lot more guys, like you mentioned, on the offensive line. You have two running backs this year rather than one running back. You have a quarterback behind Dylan Gabriel that can come in, and we know. He's probably going to be able to at least do something. <laughs> He's going to be able to do a lot more than what we had last year. So the, the abilities and the way that this offense can open up a second year, everyone knows the system with Levy. I, I don't see this offense taking a step back. I see them taking a step forward. And I think Levy's going to be able to coach this team into the right position to be more effective because of the depth across the board. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that that's one of the big things. You know, everybody's talked about, you know, the the uncertainty. What's the wide receiver position going to look like? I think Oklahoma is going to be fine. Where I think that this, this offense has the ability to maybe take another step up is I think that a lot of the time last year, Jeff Levy almost kind of had to pull the reins back a little bit on Dylan Gabriel simply because of the fact that, you know, once we saw it in the in the second half of the TCU game in all of Texas, once Dylan Gabriel got hurt, you didn't have a functional quarterback on the roster that could, you know, execute this offense. So the fact that you've got the highly touted five-star in Jackson Arnold that's, you know, from everything that we've heard, especially through seven-on-seven, is lighting it up and is, you know, is, you know, building, you know, not just as a quarterback, but he's building into uh, a leader, the future, you know, leader and captain of this football team. Um, I just think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity this year for Jeff Levy to kind of open things up a little bit, maybe call a game a little bit differently, knowing that you can, you know, maybe get a little bit more out of Dylan Gabriel. You know, you can, you know, utilize his legs a little bit, be a little bit more effective in the quarterback run game. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And even though the wide receiver position is a little bit of a question mark, um, Honestly, if you know Marvin Mims was back, I think that we would be very confident going into the upcoming season on how well this offense could potentially perform. But it's going to be a lot of fun to see. It's uh, it's going to be a good battle to watch those guys in, in fall camp. You know, kind of compete for some of those uh, some of those snaps. So, next question, Adam comes from at Just OK Sport, and he asks, "Did you know what the condition of the culture and roster was before you arrived in Norman, or did it surprise you?" This is a really good one, Adam. What are your thoughts on this if you're Brent? To some level, I would imagine that Brent probably heard things behind the scenes just being a coach over at Clemson, um, having connections to OU and just in the coaching world. I'm sure he knew some things. I'm sure he had a good idea facing up against OU twice, even though that was uh, back in 2014, 2015. Sure. So I think he probably knew some things, but I I'm sure he didn't know the full extent. And we talked about how he's really turned over the depth. And I think you saw... He did what he could in year one, but it was even more full throttle in this offseason. So I think he did probably realize some things about, hey, there's not enough guys on this roster. We need to process even more. We need even more depth, even more guys you know, coming in that are going to be different. Um, so I think there's probably a level of awareness that he got throughout the year, uh, and we just saw that here in the offseason. Adam, this is a really good one for me because I think if you put some truth serum in Brent's coffee before he even met the guys on the roster, I think he would have told you that, yes, Oklahoma is talented. But after watching how they fared when they played the likes of Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, LSU, when, you know, in the playoffs, ever since they you know faced those opponents since 2017, there was still another level that they needed to get to as a program now. 
I think after going through spring practice a year ago, I can tell you that Brent probably knew that this team had some big time deficiencies, particularly on defense in the front seven. And, you know, Lincoln Riley, and, you know, we can give him credit, as successful as he was at Oklahoma, he built a program that was led primarily by a high powered offense to go with defenses that, you know, kind of their philosophy was is get a couple of turnovers or at least get us just a handful of stops. Uh, you know, a game that way we would just be able to outscore their team. You know, we're going to score 55, but we might give up 40 to do so. So who cares as long as we get the win? But, um, and you know, that worked, I think, against 95% of teams in college football as long as you had a Heisman caliber quarterback running the show. But the minute the quarterback play drops off, uh, you know, losing Caleb Williams going to Dylan Gabriel, and as good as Dylan Gabriel is, he's not Caleb, he's not Kyler, Jalen, or Baker. There is a little bit of a drop off here. And, you know, once the quarterback play, you know, kind of drops off just a little bit or you go up against some of the other elite teams in college football, you can no longer hide the weaknesses on your on your roster. And I think that's what happened last year. And I think that Brent knew going into the season that there were going to be some massive growing pains. Now, not six and seven record type of growing pains, but guys were going to make mistakes and games were going to be lost. But one thing that I do want to give Brent credit on and one thing that, you know, I think that Brent did right uh, was he didn't change his scheme or his vision for the program just because guys were making mistakes in year one and they were losing a few football games. So he stuck with it. He let the guys play, made mistakes. And now as we move into the second season, uh, I think that this team is not only going to be more talented because of the upgrades uh, that they've had in both recruiting and in the transfer portal, but I think that they're going to be more comfortable in playing faster on defense, which is going to create a uh, you know a more sound you know better product on the field. So, and you know coming off of a top five class last year, combined with what we're starting to see in 2024, I think that this program is moving in the right in the right direction. We just need this to translate into wins this upcoming fall. You know it's July 12th because we are fully drinking the Kool-Aid. Fully drinking the Kool-Aid. It's that time of year, man. We're, what, 50, 52 days away from kickoff? So the crimson color glasses are starting to come on more and more. Exactly. And we're going to lower our our expectations a little bit here in a second. We talk about worst case, best case scenarios. Uh, Let's go on to the next question, though. Yeah, at Boomer Joe OU1, uh, kind of a, a little break in seriousness here. He asked, do you make a better brisket than Lincoln Riley? And all I have to say to that, Boomer Joe, it doesn't take much by the looks <laughs> of things. So so uh, I think that that would be a pretty good answer from Brent. Uh, next question comes from at Grant Buller 2 on Twitter. He asks, and Adam, this is an interesting one. What does the 2024 NIL budget look like? This is really interesting because – by the time a lot of people probably listen to this episode, we'll see the results of that 2024 budget. Bingo. I would, I would kind of like to know, add to this question, what was the budget last year? What is it now? Because I think there's a clear difference in where, where OU's heading on this one. And I think we saw step one of that with that turnip seed uh, resigning at OU. And still all sorts of rumors. I don't think anyone knows the exact picture because everyone's given kind of slightly different answers there. I don't fully know. But I think it is one sign, and we saw a good quote from Maryland not that long ago about how Maryland built a nice new facility, and their coach came out and said, these guys would get dressed in a trash can if it meant more NIL. And I kind of think OU understood that, maybe not necessarily from that quote, from Maryland, from their situation, but they just kind of understood the situation of college football right now. Mm -hmm. And so I do think, I would like to know, what is the difference in the budget between 2023 and 2024 class? Because... I think it's different. I think we'll know here within about 24 hours. And I think we'll see a lot more difference going into the beginning of August as well as as far as some of those results uh, coming in. 
Yeah, you know, Adam, I think one of the I think perhaps one of the biggest changes that we've seen from 2022 to 2023 has been a bigger emphasis and effort placed on NIL and recruiting. You know, used to be at at Oklahoma, you could recruit kids while only having to sell them on tradition, uh, excellence, facilities. Hey, come here to win championships. We'll get you to the league. But the game has kind of changed as we sit here today on July 2023. Everyone's got nice facilities. All the programs that Oklahoma is battling for these elite recruits, Georgia, Bama, Texas, Ohio State, all of these programs have a winning tradition outside of Texas A&M. Nice little jab at them. So you've got to get involved in the NIL space, and it seems like Oklahoma is finally starting to play the game, and we can go into more detail down the line. But from some of the conversations that we've had, you know, with people inside the program and, in, you know, at the university, Brent Venables and this coaching staff, I think basically told the higher-ups, hey, you want to compete in the SEC? You want to win ball games in this league? And you want to compete for national championships? I need guys. I'm not saying that the players that we don't, you know, already have on the roster aren't good, but there's a whole other level. And, you know, college football fans, Oklahoma fans specifically, should notice this when they turn on the tape and they watch Bama, they watch Georgia, they watch Ohio State. It's a different caliber level of athlete than what Oklahoma has, you know, for the most part on this on this current roster at a lot of key positions like the defensive line where you've got to start getting those guys on a consistent basis, getting them on campus. So I, I, I talk about it all the time, Adam, adapt or die in this day and age in college football. And it sounds like Oklahoma is starting to figure things out in the NIL space, which is something that we've just been asking for since the very beginning. You love to hear it. Give me some more Kool-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, as far as 2024 goes, when trying to forecast the budget, if this team puts together another top 10, potentially top five recruiting class, you go out there and you win 10 plus games this year. I promise you that 2024 budget is going to get a lot bigger than, than what it currently is sitting at right now. So Adam, next question here, this comes on, comes to us from at D chain 14 on Twitter. He asks what changes in game management and in-game adjustments have you personally learned and deployed out to the staff? Is there someone you've leaned on to get advice from? I think we all really like to think that Bob Stoops is involved in those conversations or involved in mentoring Brent. I'm not really sure that he is. I'm, I'm not saying that Bob's not interested in that or, yeah. uh, or anything like that. I, I think it's just he wants to be asked by Brent. He's not going to overstep uh, a boundary there. Um, and so I wonder you know, if it's, if it's Bob, if it's probably Matt Wells, who's already on staff a lot. I'm sure he's relying on Seth Luttrell, who's been a head coach. Uh, I'm sure he's relying on Dabo still at this point. You know, I'm sure they're having conversations about, mm-hmm. hey, you know, how should I manage that? How should I um, be doing things like that? And I think it's not just uh, on the game. It's it's in the week of the game. It's how how are you managing all your time, your press conferences? Like you could be doing a 30-minute press conference or an hour press conference. Well, that's a half hour that took away from game yep. preparation and working with your coaches on Monday afternoon or whenever that, you know, the weekly press conference is. Right. So I think there's a whole there's a whole aspect of that of, it's not just when the game happens, it's leading up to the game, all the days leading up to that game. And so I'm sure that Brent is taking a big look at that because I, I think he knows that you play in this many close games that are decided by a field goal, like the little things, the details matter. And so I'm sure that Brent has taken a lot of time to review that, just like all the players are, mm-hmm. uh, just like Dylan Gabriel was. I think there was a, an article from The Athletic where uh, Dylan Gabriel sat down with Jeff Levy and they watched through every single game to look at the details of everything that happened there. And I'm sure Brent's doing the same uh, in his own way as a coach there. 
Adam, Oklahoma lost five games last year by a touchdown or less. And in a game that tight, it usually comes down to a handful of plays or a handful of calls or, you know, coaching decisions that ultimately is going to be the difference between the winning and losing. Now, we saw Brent Venables and Jeff Levy struggle with clock management, in-game adjustments, not knowing when to call a, uh, call a timeout, et cetera. And that cost Oklahoma, no doubt about it. You can't sugarcoat or hide from that. Now, moving forward, I would expect Brent to be better in those types of situations. He's had the opportunity this offseason to, like you did, like you said, he's had the ability to kind of pick the brain of Bob Stoops. He's talked to Dabo Sweeney. He's even had some conversations with Switzer uh, about this. So I think Brent is going to improve in in a lot of areas this upcoming year in his second season as a head coach. And you know, Adam, we've worked together. We played sports. Did you not improve and get better the more that you did something? Uh, you know, more repetition that you know that builds more consistency. Um, so you combine the second year with having former head coaches on the staff like Matt Wells and now Seth Luttrell as another guy who's you know he's got that experience, he's got that ability. I think Brent's going to be just fine this fall. It's just a matter of you cannot afford to make the same mistakes for a second year in a row. And we'll see if that's something that Brent's improved on. Um, and we'll see if that can, you know, result in a couple more wins for Oklahoma this upcoming year. Now, next question here comes from Sooner Saint. There's chatter that it is easier to recruit to Clemson than Oklahoma. Why? Two reasons for this. One, proximity to talent. You know, it's in, it's in South Carolina. It's closer to Charlotte. It's closer to Atlanta uh, than OU is to Dallas. So there's a lot more talent right there in that that area. Now, they don't necessarily grow up Clemson fans um, for the most sure. part there, so they definitely have to battle that. But it's, it's a different feeling when you can take those recruits in and say, hey, here's our national championship trophy from 2018, from 2016. And guess what? It looks just like the national championship trophies they hand out today. It's not that you know, see-through crystal ball that OU has from 2000. Uh, that's different. Now, I think that probably is fading for Clemson because – at that point, a lot of the recruits right now were still in middle school. So yeah. I, I, it is very much a what have you done for me lately uh, game right now. And I think Clemson's still riding off of some of that recent success, but it's becoming mm-hmm. more in the in the you know past. Uh, you know, I don't want to say distant past, but it is in yeah. the past in, in recruits' minds. And I think that's a dangerous point that OU could be on if the season turns poorly. But I think OU is about to get to a point where it's going to be significantly easier to recruit to OU than it will be to Clemson. You know, Adam, I'm kind of I'm going to toe the line a little bit on this because I do agree with you in in most of what you said. I think right now the answer is yes, it is a little bit easier to recruit to Clemson than it is Oklahoma because of the proximity factor, um, and you know. I, but it's not by much. In fact, when you look at the on three recruiting rankings for the last eight years, Oklahoma had the higher recruiting class four years. Clemson's been higher the other four years. And they're all kind of right there neck and neck within four or five spots of each other in any given season. But, you know, Adam, let's just look at the last eight seasons between these two programs. Oklahoma has won six out of the last eight Big 12 championships, but they haven't won a playoff game or even played for a national title since 2008. So when you flip the page over and you see what Clemson's done over the last decade, because recency bias does play a huge factor in this conversation, Clemson's won seven out of the last eight ACC titles. They played in four national championship games and won two of them. You combine that with the salesman that is Dabo Sweeney, and yes, right now it is Clemson. But I think with the SEC transition underway, I think that you're going to see Oklahoma kind of firmly cement themselves ahead of the Tigers in the coming years as long as they continue to, you know, 
it starts with this season as long as they continue to you know build momentum and win football games and get back to playing for you know conference championships then yeah i think it's going to be oklahoma far and away especially with you know kind of the status of the acc being up in the air what the future of that conference is how's that going to play uh for clemson in terms of recruiting in the future so great question there from sooner state uh last one here adam and then we'll kind of you know we'll talk a little bit about best case worst case scenarios this question comes from at super silly guy one interesting avatar there how long until the defense can get to where they were at Clemson? And Adam, I'm going to start this one off here, and then I'll throw this over to you. That way you can transition us. I think that this is a tough one to answer because with where Oklahoma is heading, and I'm talking about the SEC, I think it's going to be a lot tougher for Oklahoma to field a defense as dominant as the ones that Brent had while he was at Clemson. You know, and some of that has to do with the level of competition in the ACC. Now, I know Oklahoma defensively was horrible a year ago, but let's not forget about Brent's track record and Brent's first year at Clemson. It wasn't very good either. I think it was outside of the top 70, maybe the top 80 uh, in year one up there in South Carolina, but he recruited his ass off. He developed those players that got a lot better in year two. And then by the time he's able to have his first year of recruiting class, be able to come in as sophomores, some even juniors by year three, Clemson had the number one total defense in college football. Now, I'm not a believer that Oklahoma can climb all the way up there to the number one spot on top of the mountain, but with the way that this staff is building momentum on the recruiting trail and you can start winning those recruiting battles against Bama, against Georgia, uh, against Ohio State for some of those elite guys like we're seeing a williams area, a David Stone, a Nigel Smith to name a few, you're going to start seeing Oklahoma's defense get back to the way they used to be in the early 2000s. And I think that's entirely possible, but you've got to have the horses in order to do it. It's not the X's and O's. It's the Jimmy's and the Joe's, and there's a reason why you look and you see Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State, always the teams fighting for the title at the end of the year. It's no mistake that you know the recruiting rankings um, you know, plays a, a big portion of that as well. They're always in the top four to five. You hit the nail on the head there about the Jimmys and the Joes, and I think that's where we're headed right now. So I, I kind of look at it in this tier. Last year we were bad. This year, I think, will be better than average. 2025, I think, will be pretty good to very good. And then I think 2026, that's where we become elite. Same level as Clemson was. And the really the, the reasoning behind that is you had some elite defenders in your 2023 class. You're going to have some even better ones in your 2024 class. And then you're going to start stacking all those guys up in the classes after that. And you've got you know third-year P.J. Adeboare. You've got three-year three Peyton Bowen in 2026. So you've got, you know, some guys in there that I think are going to be, uh, you know, at, at their elite level at that point. And so I think you've got an elite defense at that point. So I, I very much think that's when OU will start to be on par with Clemson. Uh, I agree. In terms of defense there. Let's talk a little bit about worst case scenario, best case scenario. We'll start with worst case here uh, just to kind of get the bad taste of our, out of our mouth first. Move on to best case. Really what this exercise is, is to just say, hey, if nothing goes OU's way, what is their worst case record? What does that mean for OU? Uh, what is the pathway to that? And then vice versa for best case scenarios. Now, we kind of have some loose rules here. It's really just, hey, we're not going to predict like, you know, worst or best case scenario, like Kirby Smart gets fired in the middle of the year. <laughs> Nothing crazy like that. Uh, we're going to try to make it as realistic as possible. Uh, but we'll start with our worst case scenario. Tyler, what is OU's record in a worst case scenario? And what is the pathway there? 
I think worst case scenario, you're probably looking at a seven and five type season, potentially an eight and four, which again, some people are probably thinking you go from winning six games in year one to eight wins in year two. To me, that's a complete and total failure, barring you know significant injuries, of course. But I think that Brent and Oklahoma have to win a minimum of nine games this year, um, barring a huge ton of injuries, of course. With the Sooners having such a weak, favorable schedule where you know they're going to be favored in 10 of their 11 games, there's no reason why they shouldn't be one of the two teams at the end of the season in Arlington competing for a Big 12 championship. But if you don't show any signs of progress, you make some of those same in-game mistakes like we saw from a year ago, you go 7-5, and 8-4, or even 9-3 and three for some people uh, in this fan base. And I think that you're going to start seeing support really waver uh, uh, for, for Brent. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on this coaching staff to begin with coming off of the six and seven season, but the the move to the SEC one year from now just kind of heightens it a little bit more. So yeah, I think Oklahoma's got to win a minimum of nine games for this fan base to, you know, kind of feel like the waves have calmed a little bit from uh, coming off of 2022 and they can feel, you know, somewhat good about this program going into the SEC next fall. I'm one of those fans that nine and three leaves a dirty taste in my mouth. I want double digits in every single year, um, but you. I have a high standard. So my worst case scenario, I was very similar to you. I look across the schedule and I go, okay, if, if if OU rolls out here, uh, you know, if Dylan Gabriel regresses, I, I don't, not in that camp at all. Uh, some people I think kind of have already regressed him already. They, they think he's terrible. He's trash. Um, I think it was actually pretty good last year. But if the offensive line doesn't develop around that, if I'm completely wrong about all my takes about how the wide receiver position is not as important as other uh, groups on the field. If I'm wrong about that, you know, this offense could take a step back. I don't mm-hmm. think they will, but I think this is worst case scenario. I, I think you look at it and go, Hey, if the interior of the defensive line is still completely soft, it doesn't matter that your safeties are improved or your defensive ends are improved because the, every team is running right up the middle. I think things could be pretty bad. We could see a lot of repeats of last year. Again, worst case scenario. We don't think it's the most likely scenario, but look at the schedule. I mean, I think there's a lot of games that could be toss ups. If we say, hey, we get a similar result to last year, uh, where you've got like SMU, we all think Cincinnati is probably going to be a night game. Iowa State's a tough team that will come punch you in the mouth. Texas, of course. UCF, probably the, the best team out of those teams that are coming to the Big 12. Uh, KU's very improved. Oklahoma State's on the road. BYU's on the road. TCU's uh, you know, a solid program with a lot of talent. So I think outside of like Arkansas State and outside of Tulsa and outside of West Virginia at home, I think all the rest of the games are pretty much losable. They could be coin flips in a worst case scenario. I don't think OU would lose every single one of those games and go three and eight. I think most likely they'd find some ways to win some of those games, um, you know, about 50, 50 on them. So that's where I would kind of finish there. Very similar to you at seven and five as my worst case uh, scenario record and a tax, a tax act Texas (laughs) bowl appearance. So definitely don't want that. But if that worst case awful scenario happens, what does that mean for Brent Venable's job security? Does he get a third year in Norman? If he goes seven and five, which is your worst case scenario, does he get a third yeah. year in Norman? Yeah, same, same as your same as your record, worst case. I th- oh god, I mean, you, you go seven and five against this schedule, one that's absolutely unacceptable. But number two, with the with the move that we've got going in, if you can't if you can't what is it six and seven, and then you go seven and five, so what? That's thirteen and twelve in your oh. first two seasons in the Big Twelve, <clears throat> and then you're going to raise the bar of competition that you're going to be facing in the SEC. I think he would get a third year because the administration and Joe Castiglione are behind Brent. 
But I think that if you go seven and five, then you're going to have a heavy majority of your fan base that's given up on this guy. And, you know, that's obviously not something that we want to see, you know, with what Brent, obviously everything that he's done, the type of coach he is, the type of man that he is, and, you know, the type of influence that he has on these kids that play for him. But, yeah, um, you go seven and five. I'm not sure who's going to be out there uh, in terms of, you know, somebody else that you would want to potentially bring in. But, you, you know, I think that you would definitely have to kick the tires after a seven and five season. You have to ask the question realistically in that Board of Regents meeting in the administration offices, is Brent Venables the right guy to lead this program into the SEC? But I don't think it's going to come to that. I think I guess we'll talk about which scenario is more likely here in a second after we go through best case. So let's do that first. Yeah. We had Best some interesting responses. We had some interesting Twitter responses. Yeah, yeah, here. We, we did. We took this one to Twitter and we asked a lot of people like, hey, what do you think OU's best case scenario is? I think a lot of people kind of missed the question there and just said, hey, here's what I think the record actually will be. But what we want to go through is if everything breaks OU's way, like what is the ceiling for this team? Like what could they actually accomplish? We get a lot of people that said, yeah, 15-0 and in national championship probably is the ceiling <laughs> if everything breaks that way. We'll give our takes on what we think that's really here in a second. Uh, I think, you know, we got some good ones, though. Jordan Esco uh, said undefeated, you know, 11-1 based on the schedule alone. I think that's very fair because this schedule is super easy. We've talked about it ad nauseum that, hey, you know, outside of Texas, you're favored in every single game of the year. That's not unusual for OU. And Texas is kind of that game that who knows what happens there. I, I think a lot of people think OU, Texas is in better shape right now, but – uh, that's not a win whatsoever at all. Um, we know who Texas no. is. We know what they've been the last couple of years. Uh, we got a lot of people that said national title. Um, even Big Game Boomer chimed in there. So he said 10 and 2. Um, very polarizing figure there. But Tyler, what's your best case scenario for the Sooners? I think I think that this is the most realistic, and I'm actually going to go with the uh, I'm going to go in agreement with Big Game Boomer here. I think that 10 and 2 is the most likely outcome. Like you said, you're going to be favored in 10 of 11. But when is the last time that Oklahoma was able to go unblemished through conference play? Obviously, the non-conference uh, is a little bit of a letdown, obviously, with Georgia being removed from the schedule you know, due to the SEC transition. But you just look at the schedule, Adam. I don't think that there's any reason why Oklahoma going into the, uh, going into the Cotton Bowl on October 7th, there's no reason why this Oklahoma team shouldn't be sitting at 5-0 and uh, going up against an undefeated or potentially one-loss uh, Texas who's got that Week 2 matchup against Alabama. But – you go down, okay, say you lose that game, which, you know, as we sit here right now, July 12th, I would probably pick Texas to beat Oklahoma uh, just because I need to see more. I kind of feel like I have a better sense of what Texas is going to look like this upcoming year. Offensively, they're loaded. Can Quinn Ewers take that next step? If if Quinn Ewers can be the guy that he was, you know, so, high, so highly touted coming out of high school, uh, Texas should run away with this conference uh, altogether. But this is the University of Texas in Austin. It's been, the, it's been the team that does the least with the absolute most for the better part of the last 20 years outside of Vince Young. So, again, uh, I, I think that this is a situation for Oklahoma where looking at the back half of the schedule, you've got UCF at home. Yes, so from a talent standpoint of the four newcomers, that is the most you know power five you know ready football team whatsoever at Kansas, at Oklahoma State, West Virginia at home. And then you've got the back-to-back, you know, back-to-back opponents on a short week going out to Provo and then TCU. I look at this, Adam. I think that ten and two is very realistic. Um, and to me, there's no excuse, barring a significant injury to a couple of key players on this team, why this team should not win double-digit games this regular season. So you think 
that everything that goes OU's way tens is the ceiling. They're not going above that. I think that there's absolutely no reason, barring injuries, of course, that this team does not win 10 games in a perfect world based on this schedule. If you can knock off Texas down in Dallas and you play your A game every single weekend, this should be an undefeated regular season for Oklahoma. The schedule is that week. You dodge Baylor, you dodge K-State, you dodge Tech, and you get, you know, arguably, you know, a few of the weakest teams in this conference as a whole. Yeah, if everything breaks breaks for uh, Oklahoma and they can knock off Texas, then yeah, this should be a one-loss or undefeated football team going into Arlington. And then there Let's best case scenario. Do you think you you win a Big Twelve championship and then you either go, which again, best case scenario, if you go undefeated or you go one you go one loss during the regular season and you win the conference championship game, you're going to the playoff. And then at that point right now, it's it's all about matchups at this point. Which again, <laughs> Alabama and and Georgia are going to be in Ohio State for that matter are going to be breaking in brand new quarterbacks that remains to be seen, but they're so damn stacked at every other position on that team. I think that those three guys are going to be okay. So um, again, best case scenario, you find a way to get to the college football playoff, try to win game one game. But again, even if things break the right way for Oklahoma, I just don't see with the roster stacked the way that it is. I don't think that this team um, can win a national championship this year. I think it's still too early, but I think that they're building the right way to be able to get to that point in the next couple of seasons. So again, for the people that are listening, for the people that are watching on YouTube, before you go to the comments section, or maybe go to the comments section and and make your your opinions known that uh, our opinions are trash before you even listen to this, we'll take the comments. But uh, again, this is everything breaks OU's way. This is not necessarily what I think will happen, but I think best case scenario we go into this year, we talked about earlier in the pod. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find the full pod wherever you listen to podcasts. But the depth on the defense is at a very different level than it was last year. So if we see the defense elevated across the board and the offense, like we talked about a little bit too, no reason that they should regress. They could potentially be even better than last year with a second year in the system. I think that this team, like you mentioned just a second ago, I think they can roll through the regular season undefeated. It's a super weak schedule. I think the Big 12 as a whole is weak. You have two 3,000-yard passers returning. One of them is on your team, and Dylan Gabriel led the conference in passing yardage last year. And then you've got Hunter Deckers at Iowa State. No one's really worried about him. You have one 1,000-yard rusher returning at Kansas. You have zero 1,000-yard receivers returning, including everyone's darling, Xavier Worthy. So there's no reason that OU can't go undefeated in the regular season if everything goes well, if the hype around this team making a leap in year two, like we've seen many, many, many other teams do under a second-year head coach. I think it's realistic. I don't think it's the most likely, but I think it's realistic that OU could go undefeated in the Big 12 just purely based on schedule and the weakness of the conference. And I think OU's got, they've still got some dudes. The depth is not where you want it to be. I still think it's going to be very tough, you know, once you do go undefeated. And I think best case scenario, OU draw someone like Kansas, maybe in Arlington, you're able to defeat them just based on talent differential alone. You head to the playoffs. Again, like you talked about matchup wise, you get somebody that's new to the playoffs. Like we see every year, like that Washington, Michigan state program, for example, Maybe this year it's Miami, Texas A&M, Oregon State, whoever. OU gets the matchup they want. 
And then at that point, national championship, it's house money. I don't think you can avoid a Georgia and Ohio State or Alabama going through the playoffs. But um, if somehow you could, maybe OU has a chance at a championship, but I don't think that they're able to win that because I think they have to go through one of those three programs. And OU's just got so much, uh, so much talent to make up to, to get to the ground of those guys. Adam, there's two question marks that I really, you know, have focused on this offseason when talking about, you know, this this upcoming team for OU. And for me, it's the lack of proven playmakers at the wide receiver position. And then number two, it's the question of can this defensive line that has been kind of restacked with talent from the transfer portal and, you know, a couple of guys, you know, for, that are part of the freshman class, like an Ashton Sanders, um, is this an opportunity where best case scenario, if a couple of playmakers emerge from that wide receiver position, whether it's a Jaleel Farouk and Andrell Anthony, or maybe a guy like Jaquez Petaway, who we've already been told is turning some heads, you get that type of production from that position to go along with a defensive line led by Rondell Bothroyd, Isaiah Coe, PJ Adabare, R. Mason Thomas. If that front four, and I'm even going to include the linebackers in here with Stutzman and Canick and Kobe McKenzie, if the front seven for Oklahoma, instead of being efficient, if they can be difference makers, then yeah, best case scenario, I think that Oklahoma, I think that that OU-Texas game decides if Oklahoma has an undefeated season. Because those are the two rosters that are the most closely matched in terms of talent. And, you know, there's kind of a huge drop-off after that. Maybe you could make a a case for Kansas State with Will Howard and all five of their starting offensive linemen back. You could make a case for the defending champs. But, yeah, I I think it's OU and Texas with K-State being a close third. And after that, I think there's a little bit of a drop-off. If you were to give a, a, I guess, ratio here of most likely, less likely, let's do best case first, uh, say like 70, 30, 80, 20, something like that. Best case, and then followed by worst case, what is more likely to occur? That 7-5 and five season or that undefeated season? I would say 65-35, it's more likely that Oklahoma goes undefeated than it is that they lose five games. And I'm basing that entirely off of the current makeup of the roster and the softness uh, of this schedule that Oklahoma was given by the Big 12 Conference. So, Adam, what do you – or first, give me your your opinion, what your ratio is, and then kind of elaborate on best-case scenario, Oklahoma does go undefeated. What does that mean for recruiting? And what type of impact, what type of message does that send to the rest of the SEC? Yeah, I think I'm very similar to you. I'd probably maybe go like 70-30 as far as like best-case scenario, more likely than worst-case scenario. Again, we're most realistic is somewhere in the middle there. But yeah, I think that does make a big difference for recruiting. I, I don't know necessarily that it'll make a huge difference in 2024. Maybe you get like a couple of guys here and there in that to round out that class. Um, but I think it makes a bigger difference for the 2025 class. We talked earlier in the podcast about the budget for NIL. And you want to get to a point where that budget shrinks a little because you don't have to. You don't have to pay out so much to get guys to buy into the vision of OU because you've proven it on the field. You've proven the NFL earnings. You've proven the winning on the field. And so I think that could be have an impact. You're, you're going to look really great in a great position for more 2025 elite players, but maybe you don't have to spend as much as you did in 2024. And then hopefully in the class following that, you spend even less because maybe you've won a national championship or something like that. So that would make a big, big difference there. And I think that does 
put the SEC on, you know, a lot of notice there. I think it uh, is something that, you know, right now, I don't know how many SEC fans are, or, or fan bases, teams, programs are all that worried about OU. Uh, there's some teams that are struggling, like Florida, that are probably saying, hey, we'd like to get our footing first and establish ourselves as a higher pecking order before Oklahoma comes in. But I don't know. I, I think I think if OU goes undefeated in the regular season, makes the national championship game, I, I think Florida feels bad about that. I think Tennessee probably feels bad about that. They're not the new shiny toy that everyone wants to talk about. Um, maybe same thing for LSU. Um, Texas, Texas A&M, like that makes a difference. They're making some noise before you go into their conference. Winning solves everything and it can, it can make things a lot better for your program, for your coaching staff, for your recruiting department, you know, all of it, it kind of trickles down, but best case scenario, if Oklahoma goes out there, goes undefeated, or even I'm even going to throw in one loss because Oklahoma has not gone undefeated in the regular season in, you know, close to, you know, two decades. So, but if Oklahoma can go out there, win a Big 12 championship, either win a New Year's Six Bowl, win a college football playoff game, that's going to that's gonna do nothing but positive things in the world of recruiting. You're going to see Oklahoma close with another top five class, and if Brent Venables is able to rebound from a six and seven year, win a conference championship, win a college football playoff game, stack back-to-back top five recruiting classes – You've got to look at, you know, outside of maybe four or five programs in the SEC, there's a lot of those programs that are probably saying, well, shit, look what, look, look who's coming. So again, there's a, there's a, you know, we you got to play the football games. There's a lot that remains to be seen. But one of the other things that I hope that, you know, fans keep in mind, even if Oklahoma does, you know, you know, put together a magical season, you know, can make a run at a college football playoff. With every other program in the SEC, they're used to having to play Alabama, Georgia, Auburn, Florida when they were good. Tennessee's on the uh, you know is coming back. Oklahoma's not going to sneak up on anybody, and Oklahoma's not going to intimidate anybody because you've got you know those you know two you know you know big you know uh, the elite programs that have dominated college football for the last ten years in Alabama and Georgia. But yeah, I think that it gives you a ton of really good momentum both on the recruiting front but also for your program and for your fan base going into a brand new conference. So it would definitely give Oklahoma a much, it would put them in a much better position than it did Missouri and Texas A&M when they, during their inaugural seasons within the SEC. I'll say that. Well, next week we will likely have a lot to cover in the recruiting news uh, segment. So I'm sure we'll have a lot more there. We'll be talking a lot more OU football. Maybe we'll have some softball to sprinkle in as well. We've been kind of waiting for some things to happen there, but um, we appreciate everyone listening. If you aren't subscribed, uh, we'd love to have you as a regular listener here at the Mainline Podcast, either on YouTube or uh, here on the podcast, or follow us on Twitter as well at the Mainline Pod. And until next week, we will see everyone then for another episode of the Mainline Podcast. <laughs>